بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته This is lesson 95 Alhamdulillah So we're almost at 100 lessons And we're still in the first half of the Medinan period And for the past few weeks we've been discussing The Battle of the Confederates, Ghazwatul Ahzab, also known as Ghazwatul Al Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench. And last week we began talking about the response to Banu Quraydha, that tribe that had broken the treaty they made with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and who conspired to turn on the Muslim community and unite with Quraysh and Ghatafan and join in on the, in the battle. So yesterday, last week, we were talking about those details about the initial response. And we left off at the story of Abu Lubaba, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And that story was a bit rushed because of the timing. So let's recap the main points, finish that story, and then look at what happened after it. So we mentioned last week that as soon as the Prophet ﷺ came home to the house of Umm Salama and took off his armor and took a bath, the angel Jibreel ﷺ appeared outside of his home riding a mule with armor. And he had a silken turban around his head and he told the Prophet ﷺ that the army is to now march immediately on Banu Quraydha in the south. So when this was mentioned, the Prophet ﷺ had someone give the general call to the fighters, telling them to put their armor back on, get their weapons, and head to Banu Quraydha, and to not pray the Salatul Asr until they reach Banu Quraydha. And we talked a little bit about that last week, and how the Sahaba themselves uh, disagreed amongst each other about what is meant by that statement because they left out in different groups some of them left out a bit earlier than the others some of them decided to take the statement literally and only pray asr at banu quraydha even if it was maghrib time praying asr as qada others interpreted it as uh, him urging them to hurry up and to go there in haste and when they realized they weren't going to reach in time they prayed asr on the road so the first person to reach Banu Quraydha, does anyone know who was the first? Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. He was the first to reach there and he had the raya. He had the battle standard. And when the people of Banu Quraydha saw him from inside of the compound, they began to hurl curses and insults towards the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa when the Prophet ﷺ eventually arrived, he had about 36 of the Muhajirun and Ansar with him, and soon the others would trickle in until you had a total of 3,000. So everyone who was present 
in the Battle of Ahzab was present at this Ghazwa. And this is called a Ghazwa, by the way. In the books of Sirah, they don't call it anything but a Ghazwa because it did involve fighting. So they get there and it's, what, what do we call this? We call this a Hisar. It's a siege. Siege warfare was the norm in pre-modern periods. And if you're watching the news, you realize that it hasn't changed. What is going on in Gaza is Hisar. It is no different from the way war has been waged for centuries, for millennia and beyond. So they are seizing this. They have a siege where they're outside. What's the benefit of a siege? You have the force of arms on the outside. They're inside, and perhaps they're armed as well, as Banu Quraida were. But they have limited resources. So it becomes a waiting game. They run out of resources. They have to negotiate the terms of the surrender with those outside of the compound. So in that period, the leader of Banu Quraida, Ka'ab ibn Asad al-Quradi, discussed three options with his people inside of the compound. We mentioned that last week. And they refused all of them, even though the first suggestion was the most reasonable one, which is just become Muslim. That's a tawbah in itself. And everything is wiped clean. And you keep your property, you keep your compounds, keep your wealth, keep everything. But you're now a Muslim and you're a part of not just the broader community of Medina, you're a part of the religious community of Medina, as in you're from the Muslims. They rejected that. They rejected the other two terms as well, or options. And they decided to send someone out of the fort to negotiate with the Prophet They wanted to receive exactly what Banu Nadir received when they betrayed the, the treaty, which was to leave with their belongings. The Prophet refused. They asked again if they could leave without their property. And to that, the Prophet ﷺ refused. This means that he would only accept from them unconditional surrender. No other terms. You just have to surrender. That is it. So after this, they go back. That messenger goes back into the compound. And Banu Quraidha asked the Prophet ﷺ if they can speak with Abu Lubaba. Abu Lubaba, who is Abdul Mundir, this is a Badri. He participated at Badr, not directly in the fighting because he was running errands, but he's Min Ahl Badr. He's also from the people of Uhud. This is a person of firm Iman. He's not one on the sidelines about whom we know very little. He was always in the middle, in the thick of things. So Abu Lubaba is called because he is from the Aws. And he has history with Banu Quraidha. Why do they want to bring him inside of the compound? They want to find someone who will act as a shafir, as an intercessor. Someone who has history with them and who's also respected. Who can come out and negotiate the terms on their behalf. Something that they will find agreeable perhaps. So Abu Lubaba goes inside and he's taken by the scenes of the crying women and children and he has a history with them and in that moment he was a bit taken aback so when he was asked about the terms he let slip something that he shouldn't have said 
It wasn't a purposeful betrayal, but he felt that his emotions got to the best of him, causing him to say something that could have had disastrous consequences. So they ask him, do you think that we should give into the terms mentioned by Muhammad? And he says, yes. But as he's saying yes, he draws his hand like this across his throat. Yes. And he knew immediately that he made a mistake. Why? Why is that a mistake? Because he's communicating to them, this is an unconditional surrender. And at the end of all of this, is a very severe consequence. And that consequence is your lives. By communicating that, what's likely to happen? Are they going to be more likely to leave the compound or more likely to stay inside and this becomes a full-fledged battle? More likely they're going to do the latter. So he realized that moment he made a terrible mistake because he's communicating something that might steal their resolve, which may lead to more bloodshed, uh, more difficulty for the Muslims. So he realized this was a mistake. And he tells the story about this incident on his, in his own words and says, my two feet had not even moved from where they were after saying that when I realized that I had betrayed the Messenger of Allah So what does he do? He goes directly to the masjid in Medina and he ties himself up to one of the pillars and he says, Wallahi, I will taste neither food nor drink until I die or Allah turns to me in tawbah for what I have done. So there's two options here. Either Allah turns to me in tawbah or I die. That's it. Now how would you know if Allah has turned to him in tawbah? Revelation. Wahi. So he goes there and does this. And he also takes a vow. He takes a vow that he'll never set foot in Banu Quraydha territory again. And that he'll never be seen in a place where he betrayed Allah and his messenger. Now the ideal situation for Abu Lubaba would have been for him to go directly to the Prophet and not go to the masjid and tie himself up like he did. Because when the Prophet finds out, he says, had he come to me, I would have prayed for forgiveness for him. But now that he's done what he's done, I will not be the one to release him until Allah turns to him in tawbah, what he said. So that means that Rasulullah is telling them he has to wait for a wahi, revelation to come down, explicitly mentioning tawbah, explicitly mentioning forgiveness for Abu Lubaba and what he did. So Abu Lubaba is spending six nights, six days and nights, and he's tied to this uh, palm trunk that was one of the pillars in the masjid. And he's not eating or drinking. And the narrations say that his wife would come to him uh, and untie him so he could make wudu and pray. And after each prayer, he would go right back to the pillar and be tied back up. And he's staying like this day and night. So you imagine trying to sleep like that. And after that cold storm, and this is the winter, by the way, uh, after that cold storm, a heat wave came. So he's not only tied up without food and drink, it's also getting hot. And he's, he's definitely suffering. Now, after six days, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed an ayah mentioning the forgiveness for Abu Lubaba. In this ayah, Allah ta'ala mentions, this is in Surah At-Tawbah, 
He says, وَآخَرُونَ اَعْتَرَفُوا بِذُنُوبِهِمْ خَلَطُوا عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَآخَرَ سَيِّئًا عَسَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَتُوبَ عَلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ Allah says, and others have acknowledged their sins. They have mixed a righteous deed with an evil deed. And it may be, عَسَى الله, it may be that Allah will turn to them in repentance. Indeed, Allah is forgiving and merciful. So the word or the particle, Asa, right? We, this is a Quranic term used frequently in the Quran. Asa and takrahu shay'an, wa huwa khayrun lakum. Asa Allahu an yaja'ala baynakum wa bayna alladheena aadaytum minhum mawadda. So there's many instances in the Quran where Allah uses this Asa. Now Asa translates as perhaps or maybe. So if you read that on its on the surface, it may read as if Allah is saying, maybe Allah will forgive this person. So where is it clear that Allah turned to him in Tawbah? The answer is that when Allah Ta'ala says Asa in connection with these matters, it is certainty. It's not a possibility. Allah is saying certainly. So here it says in translation, it may be that Allah will relent towards him. But the meaning is Allah will certainly turn to him in repentance. So that was the ayah that got him out of this situation. So this ayah was revealed when the Prophet ﷺ was in the house of Umm Salama, his wife. And she tells the story about when the ayah came down. She says, I heard the Messenger of Allah ﷺ laughing. And this is in the final hours of the night. And I said, Ya Rasulullah, why are you laughing? May Allah always make you joyous. And he says, Abu Lubaba has been pardoned. So now Umm Salama says, Shall I go out and give him the good news? And he says, If you wish, you can go out and give him the good news. So remember, this is the house of Umm Salama. It's adjacent to the masjid. Whereas Abu Lubaba, he's tied up. To, and the pillar to this very day is known as the pillar of Abu Lubaba which is inside of the Rawdah, right? So if you know where the mimbar is, and you see the green uh, shabaka, this uh, grill that is on the side where the, the house is, where the, the Hujra Sharifa is, it is that second pillar. So that's where he was. So you see how close he is. So Umm Salama goes out and she says, Ya Abu Lubaba, abshir, rejoice, be happy. Allah has turned to you in repentance. Allahu alayk. And the people heard this, and they're all rushing to go untie him. And this tells you something also about the brotherhood, and the ukhuwa between the people, because, you know, people make mistakes, right? You would want someone that you consider a brother or sister, who, if they make a mistake, that they make tawbah, and that Allah forgives them. You wouldn't say, oh, they made a mistake, and they're just condemned forever. I don't want to even have any connection with them. They're just bad. They were so joyful that the ayah was revealed mentioning his forgiveness that they're rushing to go untie him. But Abu Lubaba is on a different level. He says, no, he's not allowing them to untie him. He says, only the Messenger of Allah وسلم, can untie me. Only he can release me. So when he comes to release him, he says, Ya Rasulullah, a part of my tawbah is that I will never return to the home of my people, you know, this is the region, because he's Ausi, so he's, he's from that area near Banu Quraidah. 
So when he says he's not stepping into that territory, he's basically saying he's not going to his own neighborhood either. He says, I'll never return to the place where I committed that sin. And I also renounce all of my possessions and I give them all as charity. Lillahi wa li rasuli. For Allah and his messenger. And the Prophet sallallahu says to him, it would be enough for you to give a third in charity. That would be enough for you. So this story happens and the, the, the siege of Banu Qurayla is ongoing, right? So the siege lasted 25 days. And there's something that happened on the 24th we'll talk about. But on the 25th day, that was the end of the siege. The siege became too much for them because their food supplies were dwindling. And they're also losing their spirit of resistance. The idea that they're going to hold out. That spirit of resistance quickly faded. So between day 1 and day 25, was there any fighting between Banu Qurayla inside of the compound and the 3,000 Muslims outside of the compound? The answer is yes, there was fighting. But you understand siege warfare and the limited technology that both sides uh, possessed. Uh, they had spears, they had bow and arrow, they had swords. That's about it. The Muslims, that's about the same for them. So what we find in the seerah is that it wasn't a full-fledged battle, but it, there was fighting. It was sporadic. With Banu Quraidha taking opportunities to shoot arrows at the Muslims outside of the compound, and the Muslims firing back, but it's not really hitting anyone. You, know, you think about it. This is a massive compound. What are the chances of hitting anyone? Um, we only have two people from the Muslims who were killed. We have uh, one who was killed by uh, this, uh, what do you call it in English? Ruha, uh, it's like a millstone, like you use it to grind the wheat. It's a large stone that's shaped in a circle with a, a, a hollow center, and it's used for grinding wheat and barley and whatnot. This uh, millstone is very heavy. A woman from Banu Qurayla was inside of the fortress and she, from the window, she managed to drop it on the head of one of the companions, uh, his name is Khalad, and he died as a result. The other Muslim who was killed, it, it's not known what he died from. It could have been some other cause, but it wasn't, it wasn't linked to fighting. So, uh, Khalad bin Suwaid, that's his name. Um, so whatever resolve Banu Qurayza had in the beginning was quickly dissipated after 25 days. And what sealed the deal for them on day 25 was Sayyiduna Adi radiallahu anhu. He's the first one to arrive at Banu Qurayza to set up the, the battle standard. He's the first one to deal with their insults. And now on the 25th day, Adi radiallahu anhu gets closer to the compound and he begins to call out some of the other Sahaba. And he drew closer to the fort. And with him was Zubair ibn al-Awam. And he says, Wallahi, I will either taste exactly what Hamza tasted, or I'm going to open this fort. This is the determination. He's telling them in earshot, because he's close to the compound. So in earshot of Banu Quraidah, he's saying, Wallahi, I'm either going to taste exactly what Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib tasted, Shahada, martyrdom, or I am going to open this fort. That was enough for them. They, okay, we're done. We're done. This is Imam Ali talking. So they were finished. After they heard that, Banu Qurayda decided they're going to submit an unconditional surrender. Before the unconditional surrender, however, 
there was one of them who got out, who escaped. And his name is Amr bin Su'da. Amr bin Su'da is from Banu Quraidah. So he's from the Yahud. And on the night of the 24th, you know, the night before their surrender, the, you know, the Muslim army is surrounding this fort. People are still sleeping, though. They're taking turns. They're doing rounds, guarding, and being awake. And one of the Muslim fighters who was awake is uh, Muhammad bin Maslama, who was involved with Ka'b bin Ashraf. He was on guard that night, on the night of the 24th. And as he's guarding, he hears someone coming out of the fort and moving around. And he says, who is that? You know, who are you? Present yourself. And this person comes out and he says, I'm Amr ibn Su'da. So this individual, Amr ibn Su'da, is from Banu Quraidah. But he opposed the violation of the treaty. He objected to breaking the treaty. He was angered at the fact that Ka'ab ibn Asad al-Quradi decided to rip the treaty to shreds and side with Quraysh. And he was angry that his people followed him in that. He objected to this. So he tried to escape because he knew what was going to happen, but he didn't approve of it from day one. So he hears what's going to happen. You know, it's assumed this is going to happen probably inside of the fort the night before there's talk of surrendering. So he wants to get out and he finds this opportunity at nighttime. So Muhammad bin Maslama, uh, he talks with him and he knows that he wants to escape. And what does he decide to do? He decides to let him go. And when he lets him go, he makes this dua. He says, oh Allah, do not deprive me of helping those who are honorable when they fall. So he, he just let him go. He didn't apprehend him or bring him to the Prophet wasallam. Nothing. He just let him go. Now the Sirah accounts mentioned that he went from Banu Quraidah, that territory, all the way to Medina proper and spent the night around the masjid. And that the next morning he disappeared and no one ever saw him ever again after that. So we can presume that he did not convert to Islam. He remained a Jew, but he escaped and went God knows where. When news of this came to the Prophet ﷺ, he said something so, so powerful. He said, that was a man whom Allah saved because of his honesty. He was honest. So when, when this time came for consequences, he was honest. He didn't want to be involved in that. So Allah saved him. So by all indications, he never converted. But he was opposed to this from day one. And he objected. So Allah saved him due to his sincerity and honesty. So that was on the 24th, the, the night of the 24th. On the 25th day, when Banu Quraidah surrendered, the Prophet ﷺ ordered Muhammad ibn Maslama to be in charge. So he took each of them and had them tied up and separated into groups. So the fighting age males were between 400 to 600. There's different accounts in the seerah. The lowest number we find in the narrations is 400. The highest is 900. It's probably somewhere in between. So it was about four to 600 fighting age males. So they were taken and tied and separated. And there were about a thousand among the women and children. 
and they were taken to another side. When the Muslims finally entered inside the fortress of Banu Quraidah, they found 300 chainmail coats. They found 1,500 swords, 1,000 spears, and 1,500 shields. So they, they were quite armed. It would be basically every single person being armed inside of the compound. Now the Sira accounts mention that as Banu Quraidah surrendered, going outside of the compound and were tied and separated, the Aus, the tribe of the Aus, became a bit agitated. Remember, the Aus have a relationship with Banu Quraidah. But there's a bit of agitation here because there's still certain tribal things that brew among the people, things that have been going on for a very long time. So those things are still there. These are old allies of Banu Quraidah. And the Aus knew that the Prophet ﷺ is not going to let them leave with their wealth as he so generously allowed Banu Nadir, who were allowed to leave with their wealth only to go to Khaybar and plot to fight them once again. So he, they knew that is not an option. And so they asked him instead to deal with Banu Quraidah as he dealt with Banu Qaynuqa. They were the first tribe to be expelled. What happened with them? They were sent to Sham. They didn't take their belongings, they just went to Sham. So you have three tribes, Banu Qaynuqa, who were expelled without their property, Banu Nadir, expelled with their property, and now you have Banu Quraidah. The Aus, because of the long-standing relationship they had with Banu Quraidah, they wanted the option for them to go like Banu Qaynuqa. But they saw what was on the horizon. But when you look at this factually, you see that you cannot compare Banu Quraidah neither to Banu Nadir nor Banu Qaynuqa. Why? Why was Banu Qaynuqa expelled? They were all dealt with because of violating the treaty. But what exactly... What exactly was done that broke the treaty? With Banu Qaynuqa, they killed a Muslim man after they had assaulted a woman. Right? So that is an individual. And through murdering that individual, they broke the treaty. So this is one person. For Banu Nadir, what did they do? Who remembers what Banu Nadir tried to do? They plotted to assassinate. So theirs was greater. They plotted to assassinate. The Prophet ﷺ. So here, Banu Qaynuqar, it's Fard, bin Afrad al one individual from the Muslims. Banu Nadir, it was the leader of the Muslims. But for Banu Qurayrah, they plotted to side with Quraysh and Ghatafan to fight whom? Not one person, not uh, the leader, but the entire community. The entire Ummah was a target. So that violation is much worse than the violation targeted against one person, leader or follower. So you can't compare these three tribes in terms of uh, what they did and the consequences. So there's tribal tensions at play. And many among the Aus noted how Banu Qaynuqa were the allies of whom? The Khazraj. They were allowed to leave and their own Former allies here, Banu Quraidah, are actually going to be executed. So they see, you know, some of them felt mm, there's a disparity here. Why is that? Right? These are human beings. 
And the Prophet is acutely sensitive to the tribal dynamics at play. And he is acutely aware of the need to maintain unity in the ranks between the Aus and the Khazraj among the Ansar. He did not want there to be any seeds of fitna that grow into something larger later on. So he wanted to make sure that the Aus as a tribe are content with whatever pronounced judgment is made on Banu Quraidah. So in his wisdom, what did he do? He asked them if they would be content to allow one of their own to make the judgment. Because if one of their own makes the judgment and they respect him, there's a sense of ownership in the decision. They have buy-in, right? So there's less chance of there being any discontent. So when the Prophet ﷺ offered them to have one of their own make the judgment, they immediately agreed. So who was appointed as the judge? It was Sayyidina Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad radiallahu anhu. Where is Sa'ad in all of this? He's not among the 3,000 outside of the compound. He's actually back in Medina. He's injured. Remember, he was wounded by Ibn Ariqa. He was hit in the clavicle with the arrow. It's infected. He is, he is dying. He's dying. And this has been now 25 days. Where was he the whole time? He's in Medina, in the masjid, in one of these leather tents that was like a medical tent set up, like a first aid facility inside of the masjid. Like, like, a, like a wartime hospital, you know, a field hospital, if you will. And he's being tended to there. So the message gets back to him. Now remember... You're going to tie this back to Khandaq. Remember that when Khandaq was happening, he made a very powerful dua. He said, Oh Allah, if you allow the Quraysh to come back and fight, allow me to live and fight them because there's no nation more despised to me than them for what they've done to your messenger. But if this is the last time, if this is going to be the last battle with Quraysh, then accept me as a martyr but allow my eyes to be comforted by seeing what happens to Banu Quraidah. Allah is answering that dua right now. The message comes for him to go. They help him get onto this mule. They pad the mule down with blankets because Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad is a large man. We don't say corpulent or fat, but he's, he's, he's well built. And he's wounded too. So he's riding painfully on this donkey for a couple of hours until he gets to Banu Quraidah. When he gets there, his own people are seeing him, the Aus. And of course, they want him to give a judgment that is similar to what was given to Banu Nadir or Banu Qaynuqa, just to be spared and just go. But as he's drawing near, and they keep suggesting, you know, let him off easy, you know, do this, that. He says to them, the time has come for Sa'ad to not fear the, the blame or reproach of anyone uh, in the path of Allah. Meaning he senses that he's going to leave this dunya soon. He wants to make sure that the final thing he does is pleasing to Allah and his messenger. So doesn't matter what his tribe says. What he's con- concerned about is what is most pleasing to Allah and his messenger in this circumstance. So he gets there, and when he arrives, 
uh, outside of Banu Quraida, the compound, the Prophet says to the fighters, right? Stand up uh, for your Sayyid, your, your leader. Uh, and this hadith is interesting because it teaches us two important lessons from what we can call fiqh sirah. Uh, number one, it teaches us the permissibility of calling people or addressing people with the title Sayyid, right? Because Sayyid, if it's a true statement, it's praiseworthy. Sayyid means leader. It means master. It means a person of authority, of respect. That's why it, we, I, we always say Sayyiduna when you mention the name of the Prophet or when you mention the name of the Sahaba or the Ahlul Bayt, you say Sayyiduna. It's praiseworthy. The second thing we learn from this is the permissibility of standing for Ahlul Fadl, the people of virtue. Now Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah has a whole risala on just this very topic. The permissibility of standing up for people of honor, people of piety when they enter. There are hadith which indicate that it shouldn't be done. But the majority of the ulama say that that is directed towards the person himself or herself. They should not like it or expect that people stand, out, stand up for them out of respect. If they expect that kind of behavior and they don't like it if people remain seated, that would be a sign of arrogance and that is what is prohibited. But for those others, if they see a person of, of piety, a great scholar, a great wali or whoever coming in, it is permissible to stand up out of respect for that person. And here you see this uh, mentioned regarding Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. So he says, the Prophet says to Sa'ad bin Mu'adh after he gets off the donkey, he says, your people, the Aus, have accepted you as a judge over Banu Quraida. And so Sa'ad says to his people, Unashidukum billah. This is a common phrase you find in the seerah which doesn't translate easily, but we translate it as, I adjure you by Allah. And I, I ask you by Allah. I urge you by Allah's name. I adjure you by Allah. Will you listen and obey me with whatever ruling I give? He wants to get the buy-in from his people, the acceptance. And they say, yes. And then Sa'ad turns to the Prophet ﷺ, humbly, in the narration uh, of Ma'amar ibn Rashid and his Maghaz, he says he was lowering his head and he asked him if he too would accept the judgment that he gives. Right? He's not giving a judgment over the judgment of the Prophet ﷺ, but this is the position to which he was appointed. So he lowers his head and in the Maghazi of Ma'amar ibn Rashid, uh, he mentions the narration that says that he's lowering his head and he's also like lowering it while looking, trying to discern from the Prophet ﷺ what he wished the judgment to be. Right? He, he wants to get a sense from you know, what he wants to happen in this situation. And so he wants to please Allah and his Messenger ﷺ before he succumbs to his wounds. After this he says, my judgment in them is that their fighting age males should be executed. Their property should be distributed and the women and children taken as captives. 
I know to a modern audience this is seen as very strange, but we'll get to that soon. And without hesitation, as soon as he said that, the Prophet sallallahu says, Wallahi, ya Sa'ad, you have judged with the judgment of Allah, exalted beyond the seven heavens. You have given the judgment of Allah, the hukum of Allah. Your judgment concerning them corresponds to the judgment of Allah, as we'll see. So now we come to the actual execution. When the judgment is given, the fighting age males of Banu Quraida who had conspired to fight the Muslim community are marched to a place called Safila, which is near the marketplaces in Medina. When they get there, these trenches are dug and the fighting age males are taken there in groups and they are executed for their treachery. It is what it is. Now, in that part of the story, we have a few narrations from individuals from Banu Quraida, and we have one narration from uh, an individual from Banu Nadir. Does anyone remember who is one of the chiefs of Banu Nadir, whose daughter, is, whose daughter is the Huyay ibn Akhtab? Yeah. So Huyay ibn Akhtab of Nadir, he was in the compound, and he was included with them because he was a part of that conspiracy. So when he's brought out, the, the narration says he's wearing Hulla uh, Hamra. Now that phrase is in the Shema'il, by the way. And Hulla Hamra means a twin garment. It's reddish in color. And they say it could have been a dark red or an off red, like a pinkish red. At any rate, it's a twin garment. It's a fancy garment. It's expensive. This is a, a chief of his people. He has access to wealth and nice clothes. So he's out there in this fancy twin red garment, but he cut holes and tears all across the top and the bottom. And then he just kind of tied it all together. Why did he do that? It's because he didn't want anyone to take it after he's killed. He didn't want anyone to benefit from it afterwards. He wants to keep it even in death. So at this moment, the Prophet ﷺ has a short conversation with him. He says, has Allah not humiliated you? And Huyay ibn Akhtab says, You defeated me by God. I do not regret my enmity towards you. Yet whoever is forsaken by God is forsaken. Even to the very end. Can't shake it. It just leaves like this. Now out of all of these individuals, we said, Estimates were between 400 to 600 fighting age males. There was one woman who was killed. And she is the woman who threw down the millstone on top of the Sahabi, the one Sahabi who was killed, uh, Khalad bin Suwayd. So he, she was killed as a result, obviously, because she was directly in combat. Now, as we said, the primary source materials in the Sirah differ about the exact number of those killed. The lowest estimate is 400. The highest estimate is 900. It's probably safely in between those two numbers. Uh, and what that tells you, the fact that there's discrepancy, is that they probably didn't take an accurate head count. It's just whoever's fighting age males, they're gathered here. And they're taken into groups, and they face the consequence for this treachery, which was a direct mortal threat to the entire community. And when we say entire community, think of it properly. The entire community is... The Ummah of Islam at that time. 
that's it. Right? Barring those individuals who are in Habasha, this is the Ummah. So it was a mortal threat. Now, looking at the time we have, um, we have also the captives. The captives, meaning among the, the women and the children, obviously they're not going to be facing execution because they, even if they agreed with the violation of the treaty, they're not muqatilun, uh, they're not participating in actual conflict. So these captives were divided. And the Prophet receives the khumas, the fifth thereof. So if you have a thousand captives, that is how many? Of, that's 200. So he either freed them or he gave them to others. Uh, the rest of them were sent north to Sham, the majority of whom ended up being purchased by some of the Jewish communities in Sham. And we can assume they were bought for their freedom. So they were sold up north. So that became a way of getting some measure of income uh, from those captives. Uh, but one of those people received as a captive from Banu Quraidah was uh, a woman by the name of Rayhana bint Zaid. Rayhana bint Zaid was among the captives. And initially, she received the da'wah to Islam. She was invited to the deen. But she refused. And she was a part of the khumus of the Prophet So he has an option here. Uh, either retain her as a jariya or uh, have her as a wife. Because she's Ahlul Kitab. Right? So initially she refuses any da'wah to Islam. Uh, and so the Prophet separated from her. He didn't have anything to do with her. But after some time... Some days it went by, she became a Muslim. And the, the Sira scholars say that uh, likely she realized that she was going to end up being with someone else and she wanted to be with the Prophet ﷺ after observing him. Uh, so there was still that barrier to Islam because of her own loyalty to her people. But Allah guided her heart and she became a Muslim and she preferred to live with him more than anyone else. Now, after her conversion to Islam, he said to her, I will free you and marry you and your freedom will be your mahr. And this is where the difference of opinion exists among the scholars of Sirah. Was Rayhana bin Zayd a wife of the Prophet or was she Milku Yameen? Did she remain as Milku Yameen? Uh, you know, this, this category uh, for whom Allah allows uh, relations. Right? وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ What's the verse? عَلَى فُرُوجِهِمْ حَافِظُونَ عَلَى أَزْوَاجِهِمْ إِلَّا عَلَى أَزْوَاجِهِمْ أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُهُمْ فَإِنَّهُمْ غَيْرُ مَلُومِينَ فَمَنْ إِبْتَغَى وَرَاءَ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْعَدُونَ Right? So you have two options there. So there's a difference of opinion. Did she become a wife or did she remain as Milk Yameen? The strongest view is that she remained as Milk Yameen until she died. Radiallahu anha. It's the strongest view. And we, we have a list of wives, you know, Ummahatul Mu'minin. And there's a standard list, but there, you know, there are some differences with certain individuals like this. Now we come to the end of the story and we have to address the controversy. The controversy is only a controversy for modern Muslims who feel embarrassed and uncomfortable with this incident. 
And that's largely because they are unaware of the nature of warfare in the pre-modern world. And they are unaware that in the pre-modern world, the execution of prisoners of war in this circumstance was not considered unethical or criminal prior to the Geneva Conventions. The people who frame the Geneva Conventions themselves do not respect the Geneva Conventions. So the appeal to Geneva Conventions means absolutely nothing. So prior to that, this was a norm in all civilizations. It wasn't seen as criminal. It wasn't seen as unethical. It was what it was as a consequence of war. Now, because some Muslims are uncomfortable with this, they've tried to reinterpret the story, or they've tried to reduce the number of those executed to 16 or 17 people. This is called revisionism. And what's so ironic in all of that is they question the sources of the story of Banu Quraydha while using the same sources for every other detail of the seerah. So they'll question, uh, we question Ibn Hisham, we question Ibn Ishaq, we, we question uh, Musa bin Uqba and Ma'amar, mm, you know, these marajah, yani, fiha, fiha ma fiha. Only for this incident is it a question. But when it comes to every other facet of the seerah, they use the same sources without any problem whatsoever. So that tells you that it's not about uh, it's not about a clear methodology for assessing the seerah. It's because they're uncomfortable with this story because it makes them feel awkward in the modern world. The problem is that they are reading the story through the lenses of the values and sensibilities of the modern world. But the modern world has only existed for a couple hundred years, really. And 200, we'll say 300 years uh, in the big picture is a blip. It's, not, it's very small. It's a drop in the bucket. But rem remember that when Sa'ad bin Mu'adh gave this judgment, the Prophet ﷺ said, this is the judgment of God Almighty. So his judgment corresponded to the divine judgment. And the judgment of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh is entirely consistent with the scripture held by Banu Qurayla themselves, the Torah. The judgment of Mu'adh is found in the Torah. So in the book of Deuteronomy, we have in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, verses 10 through 14, the following verses. When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, when you come close to a city, I have to interpret the King James a little bit here, then proclaim peace unto it, and it shall be, if it make the answer of peace and open unto thee, then it shall be. Now you give them options, right? That all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. You know, if they surrender, they're captives. And if it will make no peace with you, with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiegeth it. Thou, thou shalt besiege it, Hisar. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it unto thine hands, when you have power over them, thou shalt smite. What does smite mean? Thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword, but the women 
and the little ones, and the cattle, and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself, and thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies, which the Lord thy God have given thee. This is the hukum of Allah in the book of Deuteronomy for people who engage in these kinds of hostilities, who are surrounded in a siege, and this is the consequence they face. So not only do we say that Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh gave a judgment that corresponds to the judgment of Allah uh, broadly, it corresponds to the book of Deuteronomy. So, you know, looking at this story as, of course, controversial in the modern environment, but, you know, I can understand the, object, the objection of a secular-minded modern person whose ethics are not grounded in revelation. Their ethics are not grounded in wahi. But I, for, I cannot understand the objection to this act, fidatihi, intrinsically. I can't understand the objection to it by those who claim to believe in the Old Testament. Because whether they are Jew or Christian, because if you're Jew, it's obvious. If they're Christian, they say the New Testament came, it abolishes the old law. But who in your, in your belief revealed the old law? God. So you can't intrinsically object to it to say that it is intrinsically evil. So if you believe in the Old Testament, here is the hukum of Allah, right? So the same people, and I end on this note, the same people who call the incident of Banu Quraidha uh, barbaric, these are the very same people who, whose armies firebombed the city of Dresden, Germany in World War II which killed tens of thousands of people, the same armies that dropped nukes on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? So and that's not a whataboutery, you know, like, oh, what about this, what about that? It just points to the inconsistency among those people who would attack the Prophet ﷺ for this, which really pale, number one, it corresponds to Revelation. Number two, it pales in comparison to what they actually approve of themselves in the course of modern war. So it is, I guess, controversial in this environment, but if you understand your own ethics as a Muslim, the source of guidance, and you understand also the Old Testament, you realize that Banu Quraidha knew this was going to happen, and they too knew this corresponds with the judgment of Allah in their own scripture. And that's that. This means now, Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir, Banu Quraira, the, the three tribes that were in Medina, they're gone. They're gone. This means that now the political power of Medina has been consolidated. So now there's a level of political authority that wasn't even there before this incident. And we see how that impacts the coming events in the seerah that we cover next week and the weeks after, inshaAllah ta'ala. والله ورسوله أعلم صلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. We have a few minutes for questions. هل من سؤال؟
that narration does exist, but it, it doesn't, it, when you piece together from the classical Sira works, it's one narration of many, and the dominant narrations mention uh, a sole judgment given to him. So, I mean, th that's the Sira. The nature of the Sira is sometimes these narrations, they may appear to give information that contradicts something else, but in, in those situations, you would go with the majority of the riwayat. Uh, to give the best possible understanding of the event. Yeah. Uh, the story continues. Yeah, yeah. The story continues. Yes. What happened on the 24th? On the 24th night, Amr bin Su'da, who was from Banu Qurayla, he escaped from the fortress, but Muhammad bin Maslama let him go. And the reason why he wanted to escape is because he didn't approve of them conspiring to fight against the Muslims and join the Quraysh. He disapproved, so he wanted to get out. And the Prophet wasallam said that is a man whom Allah saved due to his truthfulness. And so he escaped and that was that. Yeah. What about the ruling of what the right answer I, I mean, it's technically still valid in when the circumstances that would allow it are valid and the conditions are fulfilled, which I don't believe is the case, really. But it's, it's not something that you say is abrogated or wiped away. It remains a valid thing, but uh, it is in a very specific context uh, of, of a type of uh, conflict that has its own prerequisites and conditions. If those things aren't met, then it becomes a questionable thing. But yeah, it is what it is. It's a means of protection for those people who would otherwise be out, you know, without defenseless. Uh, 